Hey there, it's Nathan with BizCast NH. This week, we are kicking off a celebration of our business leader, nonprofit leader, and businesses of the year as featured in our May issue. You can join us to celebrate all of our winners on May 25th in Manchester at our Business of the Year event. More information and tickets at businessnhmagazine.com slash events. This week, listen back to an episode originally aired in December of 2021 with this year's Business Leader of the Year, Steve Dupree. Enjoy. Our guest this week is Steve Dupree. On paper, Steve is the owner of the Dupree Companies, but his breadth of knowledge and commitment to New Hampshire goes far beyond that title. Welcome, Steve. We are excited to have you. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Awesome. So um, let's get right down to it because we um, there's a lot under the umbrella, if you will, of the Dupree companies. And of course, there's a lot of history to that. So under the Dupree companies, Dupree Hospitality, um, there's a number of operations. Can you help to break those down for us and our listeners and, and maybe throw you know a little bit of history and how we got there in that? <laughs> well, I, I'm originally from what I like to call the real Kearsarge up in North Conway. We have the post office, so we have the zip code. It's That's the real Kearsarge. Do you remember the zip code? <laughs> 03847. There it is. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I grew up there. I uh, went to law school after I was in the legislature when I was in college. I went to the Soloway Law Firm, and I practiced land use law, land use financing. My family uh, had been in the construction business, sort of one of the larger general contractors north of Concord for almost a century. So I know nothing about building, and I'm very unhandy, but I know how to finance and approve projects, which in New Hampshire is a challenge. Uh, so in the late 70s, uh, my brothers and I built government-assisted subsidized housing, which we still own 40 years later. And then I decided uh, somebody convinced me that it was a. We, we built a lot of condominiums. We're from the ski country, obviously. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the construction company did a lot of commercial buildings, jails, nursing homes, things like that, right. schools. Mm -hmm. uh, again, I didn't have direct involvement in that, but I was smart enough to hire brothers who did know how to do that. And then we decided to diversify, and I built the Comfort Inn in 1989. And I remember the day we opened it, I thought, well, this will be a great real estate investment. And within 20 minutes after the first guest checked in, they called down and asked for extra towels. And I looked at our manager and said, oh, my God, this is an operating business. It's not a real estate investment. A little late. A Hold little on slow, a second. What are we doing? A little slow to figure that one out. Uh, but from there, I just uh, decided that I, I wanted to do office development. I thought that was a, a reasonable way to go. So... Uh, sort of a mix, and I used to build the, the subsidized housing all around the state from Hooksett to West Stewartstown to North Conway to Wakefield to Lebanon to Meredith, and it was fun appearing in front of all those planning boards, but after a while it, it got tired, and I, and I lived in Concord. Concord was where Susan Duper and I, we had our kids and, and raised them, and it's a great community, and I decided to go all in in Concord. So for the last 25 years, I've really only worked in Concord, and built a number of hospitality properties, five hotels and a conference center and a number of office buildings. So as Concord goes, so goes uh, our fate, but it seems to be going all right. I would say it's going all right. Yeah. Yeah. And you found some people, of course, to uh, run those hotels that you're building. Oh, yeah. I, <laughs> um, uh, my, I 
I have a team that is dominated by women. That's been the case since the get-go. Uh, and Pam Bissonette, who's been in the hospitality business her entire life, is one of the best, uh, is recognized as an outstanding woman. She's been the head of the Lodging and Restaurant Association. And Kate Young, my CFO, and most of my managers are women. They seem to understand hospitality and how you have to be of service and like being of service to people, yes, which is a large part of hospitality, and they do a fabulous job. Uh, they consult me on the big decisions and try to steer me away from bad ones, and so far they've done a terrific job. So, Steve, as a, a serial entrepreneur, which if you're going to have serial in the description, is a good one. Yeah. Um, but, uh, <laughs> With an S, not a C. That's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. So, but what inspires you? I mean, th- there's so many different avenues you've gone down. You've, you've started all these different companies. You know, what inspires you to take on a project, to want to do more, to try something different? Well, curiosity, fun, a profit, all work into it. Um, would it be good for the community? Is it something the team is excited about? Uh you know, I like to say in property management, it's, um, you know, there are a lot of businesses where they say you have to be a jack of all trades and a master of none. But in property management, you almost have to be a master of everything. Community relations, board relations, how to negotiate with neighbors. Nobody ever calls a property manager up and goes, I love my condominium so much. <laughs> and the loud dog barking next door and the Airbnb guests who take up all eight parking spaces when they're supposed to take two that I, I just love you guys. They always call with a complaint. So it's a hard business very hard business to do well. Uh, I think we do it really well. We're not the biggest, but I think most of our clients have been with us for well over a decade, which in property management's a little unusual. And we got into that business because we had to manage our very own properties. And that's how we started. So we we look for things that are fun uh, to do first. Obviously, first and foremost, can they make a profit? Do we think there's a reasonable risk-reward balance? Uh, Is it fun to do? Does it fit in our wheelhouse? There are things that I I can't do, and usually whenever I stray from that, I don't do very well, and I every once in a while make a mistake and get a hard lesson in that and lose some money on something, and uh, I'm a slow learner in some regards. and uh, And then is it good for the community? And one great thing about focusing your efforts in Concord. Uh, Concord's a very well-informed community. They tell you when they like it. They tell you when they don't. Uh, Everybody weighs in, and I think it helps us produce better projects that I think help the community, and that in turn helps us. Nice. Um, To that end, in terms of community and and your love of and support for the arts, um, where does that root from? Well, again, uh, I used to play music. I Love the arts generally. Uh, I love the visual arts. I've collected for a long time. And yeah, I think the COVID pandemic has really brought home the fact there were a lot of people who were leaving urban areas looking for more slower paced but connected communities to live in. And it is, I think, absolutely essential to the survival of a community and the growth of a community that you have a diverse arts and cultural scene. And notwithstanding all the great venues we have all around the state of New Hampshire and so many communities, I I think Concord's really the cultural capital of the state just because we have such a collection of them. That in turn attracts people who are uh, resettling in different areas. My 35-year-old son can work anywhere. He works for a national company and he's working out of Concord, New Hampshire because there's an art scene, there's a growing food scene, there's a terrific sense of community, great schools. Uh, people who are relocating are checking a whole bunch of boxes, and arts is a key part of that. 
can you talk about what are some of the the arts projects that you've gotten involved with um, that you had a real passion for and, and and how they've helped to shape the community. And I'm thinking, you know, you've been on everything from the board of directors for the Capital Center for the Arts and been a major driver of the, uh, you know, involved in the growth there to playing a critical role in um, how the setting the future for the League of New Hampshire Craftsmen. Can you talk about some of those different things? Well, again, they were sort of there. I, I first was involved with the Historical Society when John Frisbee was the head, and we built the Museum of New Hampshire History, which was a terrific museum. But as you know, the museum world's changing. I can get the entire collection of the Louvre in France on my phone and and have it. So uh, that was a a great project for New Hampshire, but uh, like all museums, kind of really suffered, and it was eventually uh, closed down. Uh, when the Capital Center for the Arts project first started, I owned the adjacent building. That's how I first knew of it. And I was a good skeptic at the beginning. But then when you saw how much community, Marty Gross and Paul Hodes and Horace Blood and John Swope, how much support there was for it, I, I decided to put my shoulder to the wheel. And I think probably the contribution I made there was a few years before when we created uh, the CDFA, the Community Development Finance Authority, the single best community development tool, I think, in the Northeast. And I was able to convince my fellow board members, even though I had to abstain from the vote, uh, I wasn't on the board at the Capital Center at the time, but I was an advocate that to give them a million and a half dollars. And that and the Colonial Theater were the first two non-housing projects the CDFA did. And then uh, Congressman Bass and Senator Gregg, we worked on our good relations with them to get an earmark back in the day when those were uh, allowable. And we got a half million dollars there. And that got the CAP Center going. And then the next was um, uh, the Red River Theater, which was a terrific uh, project. And that the group behind that, again, many of the same folks, uh, that just made so much sense. And uh, the Kimball Jenkins, I've had a peripheral involvement with. Uh, that started to grow in the art school there. And one thing leads to another. And then the Main Street Project, which brought a new excitement. And then the second capital campaign for the Capital Center for the Arts. And then the Bank in New Hampshire stage, where I sort of came along like the Pied Piper and convinced uh, Nikki Clark uh, to have a lot of courage along with her board and uh, took took the leap for the Bank of New Hampshire stage. And they just sort of feed on each other and they keep growing. It's been a lot of fun. That's amazing to see. Um, you mentioned a minute ago that, of you, that you were sort of instrumental in the creation of the CDFA, the Community Development Finance Authority. Can you talk to us a bit about that? And then um, did you also have a role in the, um, the development of, of tax, the tax credits as well? Yeah. The, uh, so the CDFA was actually created uh, a long time ago, and it had a very complicated structure that few oh. of us could understand. <laughs> How about that? John Henry Sununu, the governor, wanted us to activate it, and the board came together, and I remember Governor Sununu calling all the titans of business in New Hampshire into the governor council chamber and explaining how you'd buy stock in this corporation and all this. And I remember one CEO of a Fortune 500 company standing up and saying, this is more complicated than any stock repurchase redemption we've ever done. Right. This will never work. And it didn't. So uh, Michael Swack, Steve Dawson, and I retreated, and we tried to come up with a new plan. And that new plan, and I think they've sort of 
my idea at the beginning and say, well, why don't we just do a direct tax credit? You get 70% off your tax credit for business profits tax or, or, or different, there were a host of different taxes. We, Judd Gregg had taken over as governor. We were in the, the real economic crisis of 89 when five out of six major banks failed, public mm-hmm. service company went bankrupt, and Pease announced it was closing all in the first year that Judd was governor. And we went to him and we said, now we've got this great idea. We'd like you to take $2 million out of the state budget and let the taxpayers or businesses decide where it goes through the CDFA. And the late Stan Arnold, who was a great friend, was the commissioner of revenue at the time, and he, he, he said, Governor, do you understand what they're proposing? They want to let the taxpayers decide where their money goes. And I go, bingo. <laughs> what a <laughs> we oh made we, Rather than the legislature, I go, yes. And Judd laughed, I remember, and he said, okay, skeptic, we'll try it. And it's grown from there. And it just has proven not only in housing, frankly, most of the housing projects, the housing finance authorities taken on would not have happened without the boost from the tax credits from the CDA. And it's how we built all these projects on right. Main Street. Right. And it's all around the state, whether it's Littleton, or it's exactly. Keene, it has, but for that tool, the Palace Theater, every, but for that tool, we wouldn't have the vibrant venues right. uh, that we have. So it, th- that was one that we sort of schemed up after the first CDFA launch failed. And uh, Judd Gregg never gets nearly enough credit for in this terrible, terrible time uh, when the budget was it stretched and there were no resources and there was, it was a really bad time in New Hampshire, much worse than 2008, 2009, and rivaling what we've been through, he he gave us the okay. And then Michael Swack, who's one of the leading experts in the country on community development, uh, served as chair and got it going. And uh, Jack Donovan was our first uh, executive director. Then he moved over and reformed the Business Finance Authority and made that Second only, I would actually say now, probably does more in terms of dollar volume, in terms right. of making projects happen in uh-huh. New Hampshire. Great organization. Yeah, yeah. And you're right. I mean, we are seeing it. I'm, I'm um, from the, uh, the northern part of the state in Littleton, Bethlehem area. And it's, those tax credits are working right now still. Uh, Absolutely. It's obviously a continued tool. And, and it's amazing to see you know, what it can do with obviously some some uh, some involve folks in community, but that's just another tool. It's you know, another tool to get moving. A quick little side story yeah. there. When we, it took us a hard time because it started when the banks were failing. Originally, it was going to allow banks to turn over their Oreo property, property that if you if you foreclosed on a house that had $100,000 mortgage, the bank would bid $100,000. They'd hold it in their portfolio. We were going to buy those and, and cycle those through, and it would allow the banks, rather than having to mark them down, get full value, so to speak, which we hoped would help keep the banks alive. It was it was too little too late. But we then moved and started doing economic uh, development projects. And in part, we were having a very hard time. The very first one was the Colonial Theater and partnered with the Capitol Center. And we I couldn't get the votes. <laughs> you know, politics is sort of a avocation from time to time. Mm-hmm. So we made a deal because the North Country people said, well, all the folks who have these tax liabilities who use the credits are the big corporations, and they're all mostly in the southern part of the state. So the deal we made, which I call the Robin Hood rule, which still exists if you look at the CDFA requirements, was that 20% of any of these tax credits raised for any project in the South went into a fund that then was used for projects in areas that had a hard time using it. So when people now, I love it when Concord says, well, of the million five, we had to give back 
300000 It was the Robin Hood Fund, but that's how I got two more votes to do projects <laughs> other than housing. Oh, <laughs> strategic it worked. and smart. It worked. I don't know, by accident. It was great fun. Awesome. Awesome. A common thread through everything you do, whether it's you know the, the business holdings, your, uh, your community work, is that community building. That seems to be really important to you. And it's not something that all developers embrace. I mean, you know, you say it starts, you know, is it going to be profitable? Well, for you, that's a start. Often that's the end for a lot of other folks. Why this commitment to community building? Um, what is it that drives you to really want to help shape the community in which you live and, and profit from? Well, I think what we see going on in society right now with the divisiveness is, is a pretty strong argument of why we need to continue to f- fight to build community. If community, if the sense of community we have in New Hampshire and in our civic life continues to deteriorate and we don't create opportunities to try and bring people together and find common ground, eventually it's going to impact business. You already see that. Remember during uh, some of the more heated past elections, you've had people go, Democrats shouldn't shop here, only Republicans should shop here, and go, what? Um, and some of the, the divisiveness you're seeing and the hollering and screaming and obscenities you hear at school boards over discussions about mass mandates and things like that, eventually that's going to destroy the fabric of society, which will then impact business, if you take the long view. So... I love New Hampshire. I'm biased, but I think it is the best state. Thank goodness we're not like that upside-down state on the left, Vermont. <laughs> By the way, I like to remind them, it's our river all the way to the other sto- oh, shore. <laughs> and uh, um, But setting that aside, it's a great state, and we have a lot of great communities, and I'm biased, but I think Concord has a greater sense of community. And, and you have to do projects. You should try and do projects that give people an excuse to get together. I think probably the thing I'm proudest of is redoing the Main Street, convincing Concord we should make that effort. And it was a long effort, but it worked. And it's created a community living room where this morning, I just before I came here, was having coffee with Mayor Jim Boulay. Somebody came along who had a complaint to him about something going <laughs> course, on. Right. So he sits right down with them right awesome. there. They have a cup of coffee. They talk it out. It gets solved. Um, I had people come up to me and say, what are you going to do with this building? You shouldn't let it be used for office, la, da, da. Whatever the issue is, the more spaces like that you create for people to talk about it, then they say, hey, I might disagree with him on who should be president, but we can work together to make sure we get that new playground or a school is better or we give opportunities for the new Americans. I I think when we first became a refugee resettlement community, that was really important for us. They show up at our hotels looking for jobs, and it was... A lot of discussions about, oh, they're taking jobs away from Americans. What are they doing here? Are these illegal immigrants? Uh, All these these sort of discussions. By having community discussion around it, all of a sudden we realize, my goodness, they're one of the best things that's happened to Concord, New Hampshire. So community is important for every business to keep an eye on because it's going to impact whether they can be in business over time. What's your biggest concern? What's the biggest threat you think facing communities in New Hampshire right now? What... What uh, keeps you up at night? Just the degradation of, of civility in how you conduct um, public life. You know, I, I spent a lot of time with John McCain. He could be pretty fiery and he could have some great arguments with people, but then he'd go have a glass of beer with them. When I was in the legislature, we'd have passionate arguments, but then we'd go have dinner together. And 
we were there was a lot more in common and I, I I can't understand how anybody has happened in Conway my Canada High School and in front of the school board when when somebody stands up and uses the f bomb because they're arguing over whether the board's making the right decision on a mass mandate come on be reasonable. Right. The, the middle is where everybody wants to be. Sometimes you have to give. And as Ronald Reagan used to say, somebody who agrees with you 70% of the time is your friend and your ally, not your enemy. Right. People, that's what worries me is the degradation of civic life and the fact that it'll make fewer people be willing to run. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so to that end and, and these you know references to politics and, and whatnot that you've brought up, um, why has politics held such a fascination for you? I'm of the school that if you elect good people, good policies will result. And so a lot of people have shied away from politics. I'm proud of almost everything I did in politics to try and elect good people to office, and you see the results of it. And uh, it, it's it, it. You risk losing your right to make a voice your voice heard if you don't participate. Right. Right. Wow. Um. How do you walk that line between being, you know, someone that's well-known in business, someone that's also well-known for their political involvement, and especially this day and age? You know, it, it's it's a tough line to walk that, you know, without um, stepping a toe over in the wrong way, as it were, can affect the business and, and so forth. So how, how, do you, how do you balance those two? Well, I, I think that's been a little shocking for me. I mean, there are groups that won't won't use our conference center because Steve Dupree was a Republican. I, I found that shocking. I wow. mean, I, you know, for a while, and fortunately that's become fewer and fewer, but, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know. I just think that it's your duty as a citizen to be involved in political life and help good people get elected to office. And if there are some people who think ill of you for doing that because they don't like the candidate you support or whatever, uh, so be it. I'm enough of a New Hampshire Yankee that, you know, live for your die. If you don't want to, you don't want to. I mean, I'm a what I call an old school Republican, a John McCain Republican, so we're somewhat of an endangered species. But I have great hope that the Republican Party will return to its roots over time and we'll get good government that comes from that. So the past year has been a tumultuous one. Is really? it's probably an understated, right? <laughs> yeah. But especially, I mean, hospitality got hit yeah. so hard, yeah, brutal. Um, you know, how did you guide your companies through this? How did you get not only the businesses to survive? How did you work with your employees to to keep them going? Um, what did this past eighteen months look like for you? Well, I've talked a lot about the 89, the bank crashes and the economic collapse then. And frankly, that was a better teacher than the 2008, 2009. Uh, and what I learned then back in 89, I thought that was going to be a one-year problem. So I didn't cut staffing. I didn't close marginal operations. And uh, I, I went within a penny of being bankrupt. I mean, we're proud of the fact that we never did, but it took me from 1990 to 2000 before I did another project uh, as we settled with our banks and worked forward. And I'm, you know, I think that built great credibility because people know if I say I'm going to do it, it's going to happen or I'm going to die trying. Um, but one of the lessons we learned is you have to make, you're going to make wrong decisions, but you better make them fast. Um, uh, the uh, the populist uh, 
former agriculture commissioner, I think, in Texas, Jim Tytower, he used to have a populist radio show, and he said, the only thing you find in the middle of the road in Texas are dead armadillos and politicians who won't take a stand. <laughs> well, that's, well, that's sort of true in business. Well, and so yeah. how we survived, yeah. we had uh, uh, 320 associates, and we made a decision. We were all on our corporate retreat talking about what a great year was going to be because 2019 had been a great year. And we were getting these reports that our occupancy, because we get those every day, we're getting these reports. What do you mean they're not 60%? We're down to 10%. There must be a mistake in the computer. Two days later, we closed up our retreat, left early. Uh, we were in Barbados, came home, and within two weeks, we started making hard decisions. We closed the Courtyard Hotel for 12 months, almost 12 and a half months, wow. closed the hotel. We mm -hmm. closed the Fairfield Hotel for almost six months. We had that brand new Hilton True done in January of 2020, and we didn't open it until August. We closed the Grapponi Conference Center, other than a short-term lease to the state when they were starting to ramp up their COVID tracking. And we had to furlough 160, we went from 320 to 160 associates, which was brutal. Uh, it was brutal. Thank the Lord, there was such great, bipartisan support. It started mm -hmm. in the Trump administration, Thanks. expanded in the Biden administration to give worker support. Uh, and now we can't get any of those people to come back. <laughs> <laughs> They've decided hospitality is too hard. And uh, But the good news is the wages are up for hospitality workers and we're building again. All the facilities are open. I think, uh, you know, it's almost a tale of two economies in New Hampshire. The, the tourism business has come back in the leisure section. So north of Concord, if you go to Mount Washington Valley, I have friends a year ago who wondered whether they were going to be in business. And then from July of last year on, every month has been the best month they've had corresponding right. to that same month in previous years. Yeah. But the business travel market, which is Concord, Manchester, Nashua, Salem, Little Bit and Keene, has not come back. I mean, Concord, there are two businesses, the state of New Hampshire the federal government, sort of an adjunct to that, and Concord Hospital. And they're not having in the volume of consultants and outsiders they did. So it's a long, slow, hard slog. We're predicting, listening to the economists we do, that it'll be the first quarter of 2024 before the business market is back to what it was, and it will be 80% of what it once was thanks to Zoom and everything else. Right. So we're, we're, we're planning for that. We're adjusting for that. We're being cautious. And again, I'm the guy talking to you, but it's Pam Bissonette, yeah. Kate Young, uh, our, our entire team of managers who really are making those things happen. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, wow, you've, you've shared a lot with us. Uh, you've gone through a lot of history and, and information. Um, the big question, what's next for you? In business and maybe in politics. Well, in politics, I, you know, I I wasn't reelected as the Republican National Committee man. I was very. Uh, it was fun to do. I did it for a long time. I carried on a tradition from Ruth Griffin and Hugh Gregg and Tom Rath and Mike Dennehy. Uh, I think we did a great job protecting the primary. It was fun to be the head of the debates committee and be on the rules committee. And Reince Priebus, the former chairman, and I were very close and remain close. That was great fun, but it's time for new challenges there. I'm going to support good candidates, obviously. I think Chris Sununu has done a fabulous job as governor, and whatever he decides to do, I'm going to support him. I hope we can coax Kelly Ayotte back into public service. I think she was considered one of the real rising stars in the United States Senate, whatever she chooses to do. But other than that, I probably will have less 
uh, involvement in politics. Gotcha. I'm going to look for more interesting projects to do in Concord, uh, mixed-use projects. We own the building between the co-op and the Bank of New Hampshire stage, and we've got some exciting things coming there. I call that alley Van's Alley after my late friend Van McLeod because he was the one who used to say, shouldn't we save that old Concord theater? Um, So we're going to look at projects there and maybe some more hospitality projects in different parts of the state. We've thought about that. Um, But we're going to do what's profitable, fun, and that our team likes and sees as part of our overall mission. That's awesome. Steve, you're, you're a good man. You've got great stories. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Steve Dupree is the owner of Dupree Companies here in New Hampshire. Thanks again. Thanks for having me. A lot of fun. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed the stories and information you heard on today's podcast, find more by subscribing to Business NH Magazine or visiting businessnhmagazine.com. I'm Matt Mowry. And I'm Nathan Carroll. BizCast NH is a production of Granite Media Group.